Hello, everyone. Do you love this podcast and want to find a way to support it? Well, guess what? You can become a sustaining member today. You can do that by visiting the Talk Classic to Me page at anchor.fm. That's A-N-C-H-O-R dot F-M. Once there, just click the support button and select the recurring amount you want to contribute to the podcast. This helps keep our podcast going and the good content that you have come to know and love flowing. You can also find the link to support us on our social media at Talk Classic to Me on Instagram and feel free to follow us there as well. Thank you so much for being a listener and we so appreciate you. As always, enjoy the show. Spoiler alert. If you do not want this film ruined, do not proceed. There's spoilers galore. You have been warned. Welcome to Talk Classic to Me, the classic film podcast and movie club where I, Sarah Greenfield, your host and classic film enthusiast, bring in my entertaining friends to talk about classic movies or any other old-fashioned form of media that strikes my fancy. On today's show, we are talking about the film Dark Victory from 1939 with my fabulous guest, Ashley Blanchett. Thank you so much. This is Ashley Blanchett. <laughs> we just had this whole conversation before. <laughs> About how to pronounce her name. It. It's like, it's a beautiful right. name. If you're confused. Yeah. She's a thank friend you of mine. And I still had to ask her, how do you totally say your name? And then we got on this whole side conversation and it was fun. People do sometimes like they ask me like, is it Blanchett? Um, which I under, I totally understand because Blanchett, I mean, it would be funny if I would like went with a French and I really was like, it's, it's Blanchet. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's actually Blanchet. It's Creole, you know, like Beyonce, she from, she's Creole. It's like, yeah. it's a French name, but it's French, like black people French from New Orleans. So that's, that's everything you need to know about Blanchette. <laughs> it's a beautiful. Thanks for sharing all of this. Um, so yeah, we watched the movie Dark Victory, 1939. Ash, what did you think? How did you feel? Oh man, it's always wonderful to come back and see Betty Davis in her prime. And I feel like I actually... This is so random. I love that you asked me to watch this movie again. It um and because I had it on VHS growing up. No. And I did. I I went through this whole Betty Davis kick where I was like just watching everything Betty Davis and my dad was really into Betty Davis. But very specifically he was into like young Betty Davis. It was like kind of a misogynistic perspective in some ways. He didn't like he doesn't like to watch anything where she's like getting like, cause she gets to be kind of like a character of herself. She gets to be kind of like larger than life. And like, she knows she's Betty Davis and she loves playing these evil characters, which is awesome. But like, I can see where he's coming from a little bit and that the older movies, she's beautiful and she's, you know, a little bit more of the ingenue and he's more into that. So we had a lot of, we watched a lot of Betty Davis, younger movies growing up, like, um, What's the one where she's like, she's got a twin and the twin dies? Um, oh man, I forget the name of it, but we, we watched a lot. Oh, I know what you're talking about. A Stolen Life. Yeah, I read that like, that was one of the movies that stunted her career a little bit, which is so funny to me because she's so fantastic yeah. in so many of these old films and the reasons they were hits or not seems very hit or miss with like what was going on at the time. Oh, you're so right about that. And I think you're so right about that in terms of this movie too 
which you, I think you may want to talk about, um, you know, the fact that it was, that it came out in 1939. Mm -hmm. I feel like there was like so many other things going on and she just, she has an amazing performance in this movie. And yet I think that maybe she wasn't, not that Betty Davis was ever overlooked, but I feel like there was just other stuff going on. There was Gone with the Wind, there was The Wizard of Oz, you know. It all happened in that one year. Yes, 1939 is one of these magical years of movie making. Um, I talked about it a lot on my episode I did for all the viewers at home, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. That episode, we talked about this a lot because it's such a significant fact of why these incredible movies might have been overlooked for Oscars that year because so many amazing films were released in 1939 and all across like every genre, like every single genre and like spectrum is covered uh, with these films. We have like fantasy, action, romance, drama. There's an excellent film in every single category in the year 1939. Um, so yeah, check out just in general what movies came out that year. But also like, yeah, you can go listen to the other episode and I'll talk about it a bunch on that episode. I had a whole <laughs> list and I read them to my brother and he was like, whoa, I've heard of five of those. And I was like, yes, David. Uh, but yeah, 1939, excellent year. You'd mentioned like her performance in this. For her, this was one of her favorite performances I was reading because she was going through a divorce while it was happening. She was divorcing her first husband and the director director was like, channel that. You're having a hard time, channel that into this performance. And she does. And she ends up being like really proud of this particular performance. Oh, I almost forgot. I was getting so excited about what you're saying. I forgot to do the plot synopsis. So viewers at home, Dark Victory, it's a drama. I think on the website that I was reading, it like said it was a three hanky drama. And I was like, oh God, what a cheesy, cheesy way of expressing that. A but three so hanky drama. A three hanky drama. And I went, yeah, that's accurate. Um, so it's about <laughs> Betty Davis, who plays a woman who is like risky and bold and vivacious, 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 don't know how to pronounce it, and full of life. <laughs> and she finds out she has, well, it's a brain tumor, but they never say it's a brain tumor. She finds out she's having problems with her brain and she goes to this doctor and he does a surgery to fix it. And even though the surgery was a success... The prognosis is still negative, as she will say several times in the film. Prognosis negative. <laughs> I'll have a glass of prognosis negative. And you're like, oh, girl. <laughs> oh my God, it's amazing. <laughs> um, so yes, she <laughs> finds out, she also falls in love with her doctor and he falls in love with her. So they're going to get married and then she finds out she actually is going to die and that the doctor knows and she feels like he was lying to her this whole time and maybe he doesn't really love her. So then she goes and lives a crazy life and she's drinking and probably having sex, though they never really say that because it's the 30s. And then eventually she realizes she wants to live her life beautifully and she marries the doctor and they have three months of just happy Hallmark movie, I live in a small town married life. And then she dies. And that's the end of the film. It's, she dies, but it's with dignity. And it's one of those weird movies where like, even though it is incredibly sad, there's still like an uplift at the end. You still feel uplifted by it. And I was like thinking about it and I honestly think it's just because you never get to, you never see past the death part. The end of the movie, she's so happy and we watch as she dies and she's doing it on her own terms. And we never see grief after. We never see like what it's like picking up the pieces after she's gone. So like the real, the victory over the dock that she has over like meeting death with dignity is like the joy of the film. So we don't totally feel depressed when we leave the theater or in our case, turn off the TV. 
right? That's a really good point. Yeah, that's a really good point. I, what's interesting about Betty Davis is that I feel like that was such a theme in her movie making. She so frequently was doing things where, because she's so strong, you think that she's going to be the survivor. And even if the ending is unhappy, she still becomes, she's still the survivor. Like, I feel like things like, like Jezebel, it's probably why, it's probably why she was such a contender for Gone with the Wind because you can see bad things happening to her at the end of Gone with the Wind and her being like, but it's fine. Like tomorrow's another day. And that's such a Betty Davis. That's, that's a Betty Davis movie, you know? Yeah. So many of her movies are like that where like she's strong and she's a survivor and the 1930s are like, but a strong woman, you're not actually going to get a happy ending, but you're going to be strong about it anyway. You're going to be a survivor anyway. You're going to be a Jezebel anyway. And we're going to love it. Even though you're, you're not like the ingenue that we're all used to. I feel like she plays characters where it's her choice. The ending a lot of times is like, this is mm. how I choose to feel about this. And so I'm wondering if maybe it's she gives us that feeling. Also, you know so much about Betty Davis. You actually might know and have seen more of her movies than I have. <laughs> and so I'm so excited to have you no. on for this too, because when we talked about it, I was like, well, what do you want to watch? And you were like, something Betty Davis. Yeah. And I'm so glad we picked this, because I feel like this is such a good representation of her as an actress, but it's also like, a delightful film to watch. It is. She is fun to watch in this movie. Don't you think? Like watching it again, I love those early scenes in the film where she has so much like chutzpah, I want to say. And I imagine that in the 1930s, that is why women loved her so much. And I was thinking about this too as I was watching the movie because the great thing about Betty Davis is that she's like the ultimate feminist in a time before that was even like that was even a thing. Like, we're not even to the 50s yet. And and this is a woman who fought for herself and was outspoken and went up to Warner Brothers and was like, you better give me the opportunity to leave if I want to leave. And she was a boss. And she was scary. And she didn't care. Think about this. Like, when Hollywood was first, like, becoming Hollywood, mm-hmm. Betty Davis did not care about being pretty, about being glamour. Like, like all the things that Hollywood actually was famous for and, like, was, was like, this was Hollywood becoming a thing. And mm-hmm. in that, like, Hollywood becoming a thing, she was like, I'm a woman and I don't care how I look. I don't care what you think of me. Like the audience is going to think of me as like someone who plays naughty characters, conniving characters, evil characters. And to say that in the 1930s and the 1940s and still have an incredibly successful career, I think she's, it's one thing to be a feminist. Like I feel like I'm a feminist in 2020, but it's a whole nother thing to be a feminist in 1939 and that is why she's like one of my ultimate favorite people and actors ever it's so interesting that you say that because right before this right before we got on the zoom call i was watching the dick cavett interview that she did um so for people oh yeah that you sent me yes she does this interview like in 1971 with dick cavett and it's just like a not censored interview she is being brassy and bold and saying whatever she thinks but she genuinely does not view herself as a feminist and she even like he'll bring up things that are like feminist and she'll be like no i don't care about women's lib and like i like men i need men getting married is a thing like she's so funny because she is this bold brassy smart intelligent out there woman who 
who doesn't like view the choices that she makes and the way that she chooses to speak as being feminist, you know? I know. It's like she's a product of her time, but doesn't realize that everything yes. she's ever done has been being a feminist. It's kind of like Dolly Parton, where Dolly Parton's like, I wouldn't say that I'm a feminist. And we're like, but you, you know are. you are. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Like, come on. Um, yeah. yeah. And then you had mentioned, so like, I guess let's do a little bit of like Betty Davis background and getting into Betty Davis. Um, so she was born in Massachusetts, like 1908. <laughs> Wait, are you from Massachusetts? Girl, I moved to Boston when I was 13. So I feel, and my family all lives there. So I feel kind of like a definitely a connection to like, you know. Like she is your person. Massachusetts. That, oh my God. <laughs> Okay. Anyway, but yeah. yeah, but she, but she was like, you know, from like the rich Massachusetts, like I feel like the Catherine Hepburns of the world, right? That's exactly how she described were... herself on Dick Cabot. She's like, yes, Catherine oh. Hepburn and I, we both were born, you know, we we are disciplined because we are both Yankees. And I was like, oh god, like, right, right. Jesus. Yankees, I love it. Yeah, because she was there. He was asking her about like Judy Garland and why she couldn't you know, grow and like remain a healthy functioning adult. And Betty oh. Davis is kind of just like, well, she's not from where I'm from. Like I was raised to be disciplined. <laughs> and I was like, she was raised to be a drug addict. Like she was, Judy Garland was on pills when she was five. Don't judge her, you know? Yeah. So, whatever. Yeah. But anyway, that's, so she's from um, New England and is like very <laughs> proud of this. Like it comes up over and over again. She, she's proud of her upbringing. Her mom actually uh, divorced her dad when she was 10. So she has like strong female Whoa. being raised by a woman who's like doing her own thing, but still traditional. And like, like what, like 19... 1918. Like, yeah. That's a crazy thing to divorce someone in 1918 as a woman. No wonder. Yep. Yeah. So she has that kind of history. She ends up wanting to be an actor, trying to get into certain acting schools and they don't accept her. She gets into one, I forget the name of it, but it was like a man with three names and she's like a big hit there and she ends up doing theater does shows on broadway gets signed by i feel like it's universal she heads out there with her mom and the universal scout it like isn't there to pick her up and she finds out later it's because he showed up and said he didn't see anyone that looked like a movie star getting off the train so she couldn't possibly have been there whoa Betty Davis does a couple pictures with them. None of them are hits. That's the story about the screen test girl when she was under contract and they made her do screen tests with those men and she had to like lay on the casting couch and like make out with 15 of the men. Oh, yeah. Yep. Um, so like she was totally wasted at that studio and she says like the reason she has a career is because there was an actor doing a picture at Warner Brothers. I can't remember his name. It's someone like moderately famous who wanted her to be the lead in his film. So she was going to go back to Broadway and leave Hollywood after, like, the failure at Universal. Um, and she ended up getting signed by Warner Brothers and starring in this film. The Man Who Played God, 1932. So, yeah. Oh, it was George Arliss. That was who wanted her. He had seen her, thought she was super talented, like, stood up for her, wanted her to be his leading lady. She was, and that was it. Like, from that point on, she got signed by Warner Brothers. She appeared in a lot of pictures. She did of Human Bondage, and that was the big break. Of Human Bondage, like... Mm set her up as the critically acclaimed darling of the screen. And from that point on, she could do whatever the hell she wanted. And so the story you were talking about was, so she wins the Academy Award in 1935 for Dangerous. And she wins it um, the year after of Human Bondage. And they changed how the Academy Awards are done because of her. Like, people thought her performance in of Human Bondage was so good and they were so pissed she wasn't nominated that they added, like, a write-your-own-person-in 
category. So her name got written in so many times. She didn't end up winning. But the year after that, the Academy decided instead of having like a small group vote that all the members would vote. And that was because of Betty Davis getting snubbed. True story. Whoa. Yes. So she wins her Dangerous the next year. And she feels like she doesn't totally earn it because she's like, this is for of human bondage. Like, this was just kind of an extra, like, we liked you in that, so we're giving you this. Um, and then wow. um, that's when she ends up doing the thing you were talking about where she it's the start of her career. She knows what she's capable of. She is confident as hell. Like, I wish I had that confidence inside of me. Right. Right? To just be like, yeah, I'm young. My career is just starting. I disagree with all of you. I know what I'm doing. So she's not being offered roles she needs to really fulfill what she feels like is her dramatic path. Um, they want to make her do terrible pictures. And she's like, no, I'm too good for those. I don't want to do those roles. And back when you were a studio contract player, you had to do whatever your studio boss told you to do. So she said, screw that. And she went to England and she was going to make two movies in England. And she ended up going to court with Warner Brothers and Jack Warner over the right to like make movies out of contract if she wanted. And she lost. She ended up having to come back. But she, like, she lost, but she was saying she won publicity-wise. Um, so after that, she was allowed to choose more of her roles, and she's in Jezebel, and she wins an Oscar for it. So there you go. And then for the next five years after that, she is nominated every single year for an Oscar, for a Best Actress Oscar. She's been nominated 10 times. She just has this streak. She is on fire. And you were saying this earlier. She plays these strong women and these all kinds of women, but she mainly plays complex people. And she can go sweet or like quote-unquote housewifely when it's called for like watch on the rhine like she's not really the quote-unquote star of that film but she she can inhabit so many different kinds of people totally so that was my very long-winded like this is betty davis this is so much of her career and why she's so amazing and why we love her and i love that that's like kind of leading up to where we find her in this movie in 1939 where she's already won two oscars and she's already had this whole fight with warner brothers and and she's still young and beautiful and at the height of her career. And I think I read somewhere that this movie was a Broadway show with Tallulah Bankett. Did you see yes, that? I did see that. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> and I guess she took another Tallulah Bankhead part at another point in her career. And I'm like, are you just taking all of Tallulah Bankhead's roles? Well, that makes sense because she's like so... I can see how they're both kind of like, yes, darling. Like the Hollywood star, <laughs> Betty Davis is my favorite. And can we talk about her and George Brent and their chemistry and how they made 11 movies together? Yes, I would love that. I love that you have also done research. Like you do not ever need to do research if you do not want to, but I love that you did that. So yeah, George Brent, they did 11 movies together. Uh, are you sure you want me to tell you all about George Brent or do you want to have a conversation about their chemistry first? No, I tell me about, about him. Well, okay, because I just think that they always look great together and they're in so many movies together. And I, I thought that they got married. They were dated. They were like having an affair with each other. Yeah, and I think I thought that she married him because she married so many of her co-stars. Gary Merrill, she married. Yes, yeah. I got it mixed up with All About Eve, which is like the other really incredible Betty Davis movie. It is that is it's one of so the most good. epic films ever made. Um, we'll watch it on the podcast at some point. Maybe maybe that'll that'll be like our next. We'll watch it together thing. But yeah, I agree with you. I tend to love women with gumption, and I feel like you get gumption in spades in like the 30s and 40s. You get a lot of like very strong workplace women. Uh, so You're yeah, right. I do You're love right. That. Like you've got your Rosalind Russell, Barbara Stanwyck. 
Betty Davis. Like off the top of my head, those are people that I really love personally. So that's, those are the movies that I want to I wonder what, what it was about the 40s that, oh, it was the war. It was the fact that women were being asked to go off and like work. Well, it's the war. Right? And then I've talked about this too. I feel bad. Every week I'm going to be like, and the Hayes Code. So the Hayes Code, again, we hate it. It sucks. But since <laughs> men and that? women couldn't be in the bedroom together, they had to find ways for them to interact and be together. So you have a lot of workplace women because of the, uh, the because of that um, because they can't be in the bedroom together. Oh, that's fair. Cuz I would think that like women would progressively be coming out of their shells. And then I think about how the 50s there was so much conservatism in, and as far as like women needing to get married and just and making a home and not getting out of the house. You know what I mean? But like yep. I don't I I guess I haven't thought about how in the 40s it was kind of maybe more the opposite of that because of all the men being away at war, especially in the end of the 30s and the beginning of the 40s, all the men being away and women really being asked to, you know, Rosie the Riveter it up and kind of get out there. And I'm sure that women were looking for people like Rosalind Russell and Barbara Stanwyck to kind of be like, I can shoot the bad guys. And isn't that kind of cool? You know what I mean? And that's too bad that like it didn't continue from there, that it kind of went backwards from I there. I agree. Well, because you're right. The 50s too especially it was about like so much gender conforming it was like oh no things got out of control during the war women are trying to rise above their quote-unquote right, place right. in the home let's shove them back down so it's like we've got we're fighting the commies we've got the house of un-american activities committee like it's it gets very strict and structured and now that we're saying that you can see that in movies too we lose a lot of our workplace women in the 50s so even though the Hayes code is still in effect we see a lot of housewives and beautiful dresses. Like, you know, we see a lot of musicals. Yes. Just like be happy to be married and that's it. You know what I mean? A lot of like the tender trap. That's all that matters. <laughs> um, so yeah, you're right. My specialty in general, if you were like, Sarah, what is your specialty in classic film? It would probably be like mid to late 30s through 50s. And I bet you it is because of the women. Like my favorite thing about the classic movies mm. tend to be the mm. women that you see in them. And that starts to die out. And then we get into the 60s. And by that point, it's just like men. Men galore, men's stories. Women are just sex objects. They're to have sex with you or be your mom. And then it like remains that way until like 1990. Wow. And I think that's why men are so obsessed with movies from the 70s and 80s. This is a whole other topic. But men are really into movies from the 70s and 80s. And like, yes, the Hayes Code was lifted. Yes, you could do whatever you wanted. And there's ratings now. But women, rules for women vanish unless you are like Meryl Streep. Wow. And I think it's such a, there, it's not my favorite era of film because there are no women. It's all white men. Yeah. Yeah. It's like white men driving cars and like, we think of it as this like, um, sexy time period, but really it was kind of like a nasty. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Cool. Like, like so many advances were made in filmmaking. Yes. So true. Like we have the Godfather. We have all this really cool cinema in the seventies, but again, women aren't allowed to be a part of it really. I mean, we've got, I guess we have like Jill Clayburgh. We do have some people, but it always ends up being a lot about romantic stuff. You know, it's, you don't get the same kind of thing that you have in this movie where it's all mm-hmm. Betty Davis is this movie. She carries this movie 
and she is so, so much fun to watch. Totally. Although I did break down a couple parts that were like obnoxious to me as well as a modern viewer. Oh, tell me. So the only reason we like her when she's a rich, spoiled brat is because she's Betty Davis as a rich, spoiled brat. Right. She's being really annoying. She's being really annoying. But at the end, she's like, we have nothing and yet we have everything. That's more Katherine Hepburn than Betty Davis, but I'll work on it. <laughs> and I'm, she says this as there's a maid and a cook behind her. And I'm like, lady, shut <laughs> up. Stop it. It's just like that kind of annoying. You know what I mean? Yeah. You still have a lot. I did also notice something that always bothers me in general um, about classic films is obviously there's no representation of any other people that are not white. There's like one person of color in the film and it's like the cook in the background who's not allowed to speak. Oh, I didn't notice there was a person of color. Yep. One at the end of the film. And again, not allowed to speak. Uh, and by not allowed to speak, I mean not given any lines. They let, like, the white woman talk, and there's, like, someone behind her. Right, but, like, keep in mind, this was a time where, like, actually there weren't any black people, like, even allowed to work with these people. So, like, it wasn't even, like, let's give black people a line. Even just having someone present. Yeah, I mean, I think even that was, like, we're including, look at us, like, we're including different-looking people. Like, even, I gotta give them credit for that, because... You think about like what it was like to be a person of color in the 30s or the 40s. I mean, that was not a good time for my people. Like, you're right. One of the things you were saying was like, she, at least she was present. And I'm like, and at least they didn't make her put, or like put her in a role where she was demeaned. Like where she was like, mm. you know, having the accent that they had people put on when it wasn't their real voice to be like, I am a black character in this movie serving you. You know, like that, that voice that people had to use. And I feel like that's what happened to black people in the 30s a lot. If you, I mean, this is a, this would be an interesting thing to study. I've never studied this, but like, I do feel like a lot of black people were doing that whole, any type of ethnicity, I think, was, you know, like from the vaudeville type of looking at accents or ethnicities as a character yeah. where like the Irish people were yes. acted like one way and the, you know what I mean? The black people acted this other way and it was- Jewish people were another way too. Yeah. Yeah. And the, the very specific like archetypes of like how these people were going to be as characters. And I think black people were assigned those roles just like any other like thing else besides white or Christian. That's the only thing that we're allowed to see, like the one way of doing and being. Mm -hmm. I've talked about this before, how there were certain directors back then that were like aware of this and wanted to get like positive black representation on screen. Who? Like all the big five of the early 40s. So like um, Frank Capra would do this a lot. Whoever directed Christmas in Connecticut totally did it. William Wyler did it. And it would be very small, but it would be like in a slight, just oh. positive light. So like, I know next week we're going to watch Christmas in Connecticut. There's like a moment where there's like a black server in a restaurant and one of the characters is talking to him and he's explaining what a Greek word means to this like white person. And he's doing it in a voice that's like a normal voice that you would use and not like the stereotypical, like you were just Whoa. saying, cartoonish. Oh. And so it's just these really subtle, small things that are like so sad that that's all we get. But people were trying, like they were trying in wow. that moment. Wow, I, um, I yes. would love to see that because yeah. I feel like that would be like, a drop of water in a desert seeing something like that because growing up with these kind of movies you know it really made it clear that like you know this was not a good time to be a black person so that it that would be really cool to watch and see like people actually being like let's just quietly show black people in a good light 
that would be awesome to see. I was in line to see a movie at TCM Fest and I started talking to the woman in front of me. Um, and she's like this beautiful black woman and she was just like, look, she was the one who told me about these things at first. So I don't know her name, but I was behind her in line and she brought that to my attention. And now oh. I like see it. You know what I mean? Like it, yeah. it brought a bit of joy into my life at least. So I'm like, I want to share that with people that like their smallest little bit, <laughs> like that's what we have. Thank you for sharing that. I'm glad to hear that it exists in any way. But yeah, that's our like 2020 lens. I always like to put a 2020 lens on it because I think it's important to do that and like say, look, this is what does not hold up. Like um, Betty Davis constantly talking about marriage in this movie and was I a proper wife to you? It's very important for her to be married and to have that identity of like a wife and being a good wife, even to the point where she wants to show her husband how strong she is and she would rather die alone. Can we just talk about that really quick too? I, I don't understand what the lesson learned is and I can die by myself. At the whole end of the movie, she realizes she's dying because they tell her early on, somehow they know this, that when you have a brain tumor that's gonna go away and come back, the three or four hours before you die, you're gonna lose your sight. Mm -hmm. So she's <laughs> realizing when her best friend, Anne, who is the most changeable character I've ever seen, she's like, Anne, there's a storm coming. And then she goes, but the, the, I feel the sunlight on my hands. And she understands that she's going to die, but her husband has to go to this like conference that's happening every six months to show his findings. And um, so she's like, well, he's got to go to this conference because they're never going to have it again, except they will in six months. He does not have to go. Um, <laughs> so I was just like, okay. She's like, I need my final task as a wife is I have to make sure he goes to this conference and that I can show him how strong I am and I can die alone. So she tricks her husband into thinking she can see and he leaves the house. And by the way, they have their only kiss they have in the whole movie. Um, they have only one kiss in the movie and it's like a small peck goodbye. And I was like, ooh, they have so much chemistry. It's so beautiful. You really feel their love and yet only one small peck kiss. Huh? Well, they're really falling in love in real life. So maybe we're watching some real chemistry there. But yeah, so she goes up to her room and like, wants to die alone and i just don't get why that's such a like how is that more mature that's supposed to show us as a character that she's like matured and become a peaceful whole person and i'm like well i think you could have been that if your family was there too i don't i don't think there's shame don't you think that maybe in the context of the 1939 that there was a lot about like decorum and about being at peace with with death is her victory She's not whining and crying and being this spoiled brat that we watched her being this whole movie. She has a transition where she she's so appreciative of the love that she has experienced, even in the last three months, that she's able to calmly accept death without any type of hullabaloo or, you know, she doesn't need attention for it. She wants everybody to keep going with their life and she's going to kind of quietly accept this on her own. And it's, it, that's, that's what she's victorious about is that she, um, she's accepting death because of how beautiful her life has been. No, you're right. That, cause what I was viewing it as was like, I totally get the point of this piece. It's to be like, enjoy every minute, live your sure. life finally in a way that's authentic. And I'm like, oh, I also see what you're, yes, you added a whole extra layer to that. that well, made it make I feel, I feel like maybe it's like, they're, <laughs> they're so into romanticizing stuff that doesn't need to be necessarily be romanticized like death. But I would imagine that like the whole idea is like, oh my God, I'm crying because it's so beautiful because it's romantic. That it's romantic that 
death is something that she is going towards like a martyr something i love that betty davis does like i just love this about her as an actress is um she's she uses her hands all the time like I oh love yeah that about her. Her so in the beginning she's so nervous and she fidgets and she uses her hands and we see how scared she is to die but then even at the end even when she's not scared to die she's always touching him she's so tactile she touches his clothes mm. his bow tie his arms and I think that's something that she brings to things. Even in the Dick Cavett interview, she plays with her glasses the whole time. Uh. It's such a human trait that I think sometimes actors on screen, when it's very formal, forget. It's like yeah. she brings that little... She might not even know she's doing it, though she probably does. She probably does. does. <laughs> such a human like, thing. I just notice it next time you watch her. She's yeah, a hand yeah, actor. Yeah. She just her journey of being fidgety. I kind of think that's brilliant because I love the fidgeting with the hands. And I think that that is a way of showing us like the energy that's going on inside of her without using her face, without using her words. She can still have some type of a visual that shows us that there's stuff going on underneath. It's a brilliant it's a brilliant technique. She's such a subtexty lady. She's she got all the subtext going on. She's great. I think it's funny because she describes herself as a very theatrical actor. And like, yes, there are moments of the manic talking where she's like, why are you talking to me like that? No, I don't need to do that. Like the quick talking <laughs> that's very dramatic. Like, yes, there are moments of that. Um, and there are a lot of moments of that thing that actors in this time do where it's like, walk, stop, turn. Yes. You know what I'm talking about. I do. So she has some of that. But then the scene where he's giving her the exam, the medical exam, the two of them together, she does give you a very natural feeling. She's not overdoing anything. Nothing is dramatic. I think she manages those levels really well. So to hear her say, I'm a theatrical actress. I don't do things naturally. I'm like, yes, you do. The scene where she gets back together with George Brent and they're having that conversation with each other, they're having a real conversation. Yes. It feels so natural and not stilted or affected at all. If you're growing up learning how to act in the 20s, you are going to act theatrically, right? Like, you're coming from an era where, like, the movies they just made were silent films. Like, <laughs> you know, I think that the style definitely changed while she was acting. Her style of acting was very popular and very, like, appropriate while she was doing it in the 30s. And I think it did come from a theatricality and from a silent film era that just kind of slowly but surely like became less and less grand and big. But that doesn't mean that it, she didn't, she wasn't always like grounded in truth. That's a great way of putting it, being grounded in truth. Cause she does right? get big, but it's always real truth, real feelings. Yeah, even if it's theatrical, you believe her. The style is different. And if you never saw a movie from that time period and you all of a sudden saw it, you might think to yourself, like, why are they acting so so dramatically, so grandly? But I think you would still feel moved. Okay, her and George Brent, their chemistry together is excellent. What I love that I learned about him Tell me. is he's the guy that they would get to work with the bold ladies. Because he, like, knows how to not steal focus but be present. You know what I mean? Like, he's, uh... he knows how to handle himself with really good actresses, but, like, lets them have their moment. He's not like, back off, it's my turn. He's like, please, shine. Yeah. That's his strength. Yeah, it doesn't diminish him. Right. Because they were like, he's not, quote, unquote, dynamic, but he's, like, so strong in his roles. And his quote about, like, being a leading man was like, you just need a good haircut because no one's going to see the front of you. They're going to see the back of you if you're doing it right. And I was like, yeah. That sounds a little bitter right there, but okay. <laughs> but I loved it. I was just like, yeah, you're right. So I'll tell you all about George Brent. Do you want to hear his whole thing? Okay. George Brent, Irish-American. Born in Ireland, moved to New York City when he was 10, 
went back to Ireland during like the war in Ireland, like in 1919, there was like, I don't know much about it. So please, viewers at home, I don't know about Irish history. I'm so sorry. But it's like when I think they were trying to leave England and become an Irish Republic. And he ended up, so he was like with the Irish Republic and was like a courier for like Michael Collins. And there was like, I don't, not a bounty on his head, but like he had to flee England because he was like persona non grata there because of his work with Ireland. So he came back to the US via Canada, escaping Ireland. He doesn't sound Irish at all. He doesn't sound Irish at all. And Humphrey Bogart is in this movie supposed to be Irish and he sounds terrible. terrible. And I'm like, you had a dialect coach right over there. Like, this could have been so much better for you. Um, so yeah, he comes back to America and I love that his page basically just says, and then he fell into acting. He just decided to be an actor. And I'm like, fuck you. Fuck anyone that's like, yeah, I'm going to do this and I'm immediately successful. It's fine. <laughs> I know too many people like that. <laughs> really? Those people stress me out because I'm like, ah, oh, you like They're like, bastards. oh, I didn't mean to do this. I didn't. I'm just here and I'm like so talented and successful. Like what's, what's the problem? What's hard? <laughs> um, but he like does theater for a while, does Broadway stuff, um, does some regional theater all around. Um, heads out to Hollywood, and then he does this movie called So Big, which I actually haven't seen the movie version, but I want to watch it. I've heard the radio play of it, and I love it. It's Barbara Stanwyck, and she's like a strong lady raising her kid, um, and he plays the long-yearning love interest in that. So that kind of elevated him to leading man status. He looks great in his suit. I really appreciated his physical appearance in this film, mm. which is funny because when I watched this as a teenager, I thought he was ugly because I was a child. Oh. Now I thought he was Now happy. I appreciate it. Right? Now I got it. But yeah, their chemistry is off the charts and he's such a surprisingly not toxic male presence. This is 1939 and we are admiring a man that's like, yes, please say your feelings. It's important to say your feelings out loud. Like, <laughs> we have this guy who values kindness. He respects her. Yeah, he's just like the image of not toxic masculinity in this movie. He's the perfect gentleman. He just, he's there to take care of her. And just like, even when she's kind of like going out of her mind, he's like, Judith, like what's going on? What is this all about? You know what I mean? Like, he's just like the most lovely man. And he never hits on her. Like she's constantly being hit on in the beginning of the film by like Ronald Reagan's drunken character <laughs> and by like Michael the Horseman, Humphrey Bogart. Humphrey Bogart. He treats her like an equal. Like he doesn't ever sexualize her in a negative way when she's his patient. Like he never hits on her in a way that feels gross or creepy. Like it's a very genuine love story that feels like two equals coming together. Yeah. Cause something that creeped me out later in the film, we haven't even talked about Humphrey Bogart. Humphrey Bogart is in this and he he's a good actor, of course. But his dialect as an Irish person is not good. Not great. And he does not look comfortable in his like horse crop riding. What do they call those? The pants? Like the yeah. horse <laughs> pantaloons? I don't know what the name is. There's probably a name. Yeah, and they try to like curl his hair kind of. It's just <laughs> not like you can see how much they're trying and it's not a comfortable look. But later in the film, he like puts the damn moves on he sure her. Sure does. Like when she's vulnerable and she's drunk. You're really grateful nothing happens and it turns out fine. Yeah. But he like shuts the barn door because he's with the horses and he like turns on the music and he like is like, I'm a man and it's a shame I was born when a man can't be a man. Uh, I like fishing and hunting and riding. And then he kisses her and she's like, please God, no, I don't want this. And he's like, but we're the same. We have spirit. 
And then that's that's ultimately why she decides to live her life more fully, because she does see that Michael's a good egg, and I'm just grateful he doesn't totally grope her. I'm grateful that it all stops there, because this could have been a different film. You're totally right, and, like, thank God he didn't continue. To me, that moment is all part of, like, this whole, like, fantasy, and I don't know if it's, like, geared towards women or men or what, but I think that there is maybe... Maybe it's geared towards women, this, like, 1940s fantasy of being a more sexually experienced woman I would imagine that this is my own imagination but I imagine that many women in the 1940s are not that sexually experienced right like because it's not like proper society stuff you're supposed to kind of like get married like at a very young age probably get married and stay married for the rest of your life so you're gonna probably like have that one relationship or maybe two maybe but I just feel like there's probably a fantasy that women have of being with like the man that just takes them. But at the end of the day, wanting to marry Prince Charming. And so you see that a lot, like in the movie, um, A Stolen Life, I was just talking about, I think that's my favorite, maybe my favorite Brady Davis movie, but the same thing happens where she's in love with this like Prince Charming type of guy. And she kind of doesn't end up like getting to him until the very end. So of course, like right before the moment happens where she gets to be with the Prince Charming, this like rugged, intense man who can't hold himself together is like, why don't you want to be with me? And I'll take ya. And I, I and I feel like it's very similar to what happens in this movie. And I wonder if the writers of Hollywood 1940s were like, like this is a way that we can get this fantasy out there for women where they're almost taken by like the masculine guy that's going to just like show them sex but in reality in the end they go home to their safe prince charming gentleman man who is like perfectly well mannered and is going to give you the most happy home with with a family life and and you know happily ever after i had not thought of it that way that's why i love doing this podcast because then people will say things that you're like oh my god yes you're right (laughs) and she gets to choose what she wants so it's like she gets that experience and then gets to decide you know what i've experienced that and now i'm gonna move on to what i want i am choosing and humphrey bogart's character does turn out to be a great guy like he actually they do become friends they kind of show that follow-up at the end of like them having banter and chatting and him respecting her. Yeah. And he he does ask, he's like, is it because I'm a farmhand or whatever he says? And she's like, no, there's someone else. (laughs) So that's probably why they get to be friends because there's someone else. But I just think it's the perfect fantasy for women. It's like a, it's like a women watch this type of thing where it's just like, oh yeah, I, that, that guy probably like would take me, but like, no, I can't. Like I, I'm getting married in the morning. Well, and you know what? They're all safe in it too. It's like a safe way of experiencing it because nothing bad really happens. It's like a sexy moment, but like there's no harm done there. Whereas in real life there might be harm done. And you're making me realize she has like each different kind of man that she can choose oh, from in the yeah. film and she chooses like the kind authentic one so she if she wanted she could have ronald reagan's like i'm a socialite i'm drunk i'm slightly funny he's not i, I don't really care about ronald reagan i'm sorry <laughs> i don't think he's very interesting as an actor or like a person yeah <laughs> no nah, i'm fine but like even he at first you're like ugh what a dick but then he stands up for her he shows he's a true friend when the men are talking shit about her and they're like hey she's sleeping around he's like hey that's my friend um, <laughs> and then he he also like you know makes way for her and George Brent to get back together 
it's like he does the bare minimum, but he does show that like of that disgusting class of people, like the the white privileged rich drunk people, um, he's like a good egg, and she could choose him. Sure. And then we've got like the Humphrey Bogart lower class, like she could choose him. Or what about this perfect one in the middle? Like right. We, you're right, we get the fantasy of all of the people, and she's desired by all of them, and she gets to choose. Oh yeah, which desirable man she wants in fabulous attire and fabulous attire from a 1940s perspective except for having babies and children she kind of like has the perfect she has a full life from a 1940s woman perspective right like she didn't have the babies yet and so we missed out on that but everything else like she had the full fantasy the full life What's amazing about this movie to me is that we kind of learn from the very beginning that this woman is doomed and she's going to die. And at the end of the movie, she dies. And that's kind of like the whole movie. And yet you feel like something happened. You feel fulfilled. Like you feel like you went on a whole journey. You don't feel depressed. You feel uplifted at the end. And I think that just goes to show that it's so well written and so well acted because when you look at it overall you're like this is a movie about somebody who we know from the beginning is gonna die who we we don't believe is gonna die the whole time because you're like it's it's betty davis she's gonna she's gonna beat it she's so strong yeah and then when she doesn't he's gonna find a way to cure it yeah right he doesn't she doesn't and it's not frustrating for us because she overcomes death in her own way, in a kind of a realistic way. Instead of the tumor going away, the tumor actually kills her, but she still kind of overcomes it. We feel like we've watched a full journey, even though the overall picture is kind of like simplistic and morbid. It's such a good arc. Yeah. Because you're right, we, we never go anywhere, but we do go on her emotional journey and it goes to all the places. Right. And because it goes all the places and we follow her going there and we visually see her and her responses and her reactions and they seem like very human reactions. Yeah. Like I was thinking morbidly, like you were <laughs> saying during this film, like Sarah, if someone said you had a month left to live, what the hell would you do? <laughs> and in your head, you'd be like, I travel, I do this and that. But in reality, I might just be depressed a little bit sometimes yeah. and like sleep in my apartment. Like I don't know what I would do. And so yeah. you, you get to see that where like she does get depressed. She does live like in a very hard way that's not healthy for her. It's a very life-affirming movie. Yeah. Um, and I think that's why we love it so much. It's really like spend the time you have beautifully. What, it, what does he say about death? Like death should come finally and he has a quote about it. But it's kind of living your life that way too. You know what I mean? Like living your life in a pleasurable, true way to yourself. Yes. And not being afraid. And that could be like not being afraid of death, but that could be like not being afraid of all of these other things that could pop up in your way that might scare you. Oh, I like that take. I like that take. It just came to me as I was saying it, and then I was like, ooh, throwing this out there. (laughs) The best line in the whole film, or like the t-shirt line, if you will, (laughs) as she's like going blind and her husband is holding her from behind and she's doing this like very dramatic look up into the camera, her line is, nothing can hurt us now. What we have can't be destroyed. That's our victory. Our victory over the dark. It is a victory because we aren't afraid. And I was like, yeah, that's, that's it. That's, that's it. Nothing that's can hurt us. It. We're not she's afraid. She's not like, afraid. That's why, yeah. that's why she kind of sends everyone away because she's, she's, she wants to face it alone. She doesn't want to face it with any, everyone else's like extra energy and fear. 
you know it's it's all about like acceptance i did also notice i feel like the characters are very changeable like anne is super changeable anne is whatever the scene needs <laughs> like when we first meet anne her best friend she's like i'm prissy and i'm organized and Betty Davis is all over the place. And then when Betty Davis needs to look like composed and together, they have Anne be very emotional <laughs> and not like keep her head about her. She just sobs or cries or like behaves in an irrational manner, mm. which they show us from the beginning. That's not who she is. Oh, like they, they want us to believe she's rational, but then they constantly show her being the opposite of whatever they want Betty Davis to be. I was just noticing that and going like, so what is her character exactly? Like they never figured it out. Yeah, that's interesting. It would be literally like, Anne would be like, you have to go to this doctor. You need to know what's wrong. And then they'd be like, the doctor said I have a brain tumor. And she's like, why did you go to the doctor? And I'm like, Anne, you made her go. Like, <laughs> or the doctor's like, you need surgery. And she's like, no, you don't need that. Don't listen to him. And I'm like, Anne, come on. And they're always telling Anne, like, don't say a word, Anne. Don't tell anybody. And Anne can't keep it together. Anne can't handle that. She can't handle it. You should not have told her, George Brent, but you did. She can't handle this information. She's a terrible liar. And then at the end, when Betty Davis is like, Anne, don't even tell him. Not with your eyes. I was like, oh, God. Oh, Anne, God, Anne. Anne's going to blow Anne's going to blow this again. I love watching just like what it was like to be a rich person in this time period too because let's just you know that Anne like is like freeloading on her friend there like you know she lives there and they just have parties every night like that's their life like I bet that really was their life like I bet that really was people's situation back in the 30s and how marvelous must that have been to just like live with your best friend we don't even know I thought it was her secretary so I was like oh your best friend is your secretary because you don't really have any real friends but what do you mean by secretary because she was always like typing for her and taking notes for her and stuff right or like taking her calls for her maybe maybe she started off as her secretary maybe she hired her and that's how they became friends because you think about it why are they friends it's because Anne was totally her secretary totally right I think the secretary came first I would I would bet that one or just like Anne's an emotional person who can't keep her shit together and like no shame in that but don't tell us she's one way and then, <laughs> right <laughs> You're really, that really bugged you, huh? Yeah, I get it. I, well, and I love that it's like the opposite of a journey. Like, Betty Davis's journey is to like mature and become better, and Anne's journey is just to be like falling apart. Ah! I hope Anne's okay. I'm sure she's she's gonna be okay. That uh, their accents really blow me away, man. And I think I was stuck. I was I couldn't get to Anne's journey because I was so stuck on her British her British accent transatlanticness. No, but she's giving you England. Oh, if I'm being real, I wasn't even paying attention. I was I couldn't. I was just so obsessed with the way that they were handling her character that I that wasn't weren't listening, listening to, to her the words, words coming out of her mouth. It seemed to me that she was giving you a British accent, and I thought that. That was and it's just it the transatlantic really does it really is hysterical because if did, did people talk with the transatlantic accent in real life no right it was just in hollywood so i think you had to like learn to speak that way so i feel like it was you could tell someone was polished or refined because of that accent because it was no one's real accent it was a learned accent that's what i think so it's like if you could figure it out and learn to speak this way you were of or viewed as a certain class. But, I, but I'm wondering, was it like rich people really spoke this way or is it just like the people of Hollywood speak this way? Because I know a lot of actors were taught it. I wonder that too. Because like Catherine Hepburn, I guess, would have probably had, if, you, if you're like a rich Connecticut person, 
maybe. But like Claude Rains was legit British right. <laughs> and learned how to talk in a transatlantic accent. So you're like, I. He did? Yes. Oh, wow. Yes. He was like poor and had a Cockney accent. <gasps> Someone from Rada like took him in and taught him how to speak Wait. and like taught him a transatlantic accent. Okay, this yes. is the mind blowing moment of the, of the podcast for me. Claude Rains was a Cockney British actor. Yeah. He was born on quote unquote, the wrong side of the Thames. Oh my God. I would love to hear him do a scene with his real accent. That's crazy. Cause he's always playing these like- well, I think he rich... squished it. Oh uh, yeah, he squished it. He pulled it off so well. Well, cause it's like, you know how Madonna's British now? Yeah. And that's how she taught, yes, yes. You can learn it. You can, you can like become it. You can like just change you as a person, I guess. But I wonder if you did get him drunk or something. If he would, just, if it would fall out of his mouth, if all of a sudden he'd be like, "Can't wait, she's dumb fit," you know, like if he all of a sudden <laughs> had that. That was our Cockney phrase that they taught us in acting school. That was like to get into the accent. That was our phrase. Can't wear shoes that don't fit. Yep, that's the line. Say it again. Can't wear shoes that don't fit. Oh, that's that's so good. Thanks. I went to drama school. Um, <laughs> when everybody was learning math and like how to count, I was learning like how to talk like different people. It's totally. <laughs> it's like gave me college real. credit for it. <laughs> they really did. They really gave me a degree. They really did. Oh, there were a lot of horses in this film, and I was deeply concerned for the horses and them being treated okay because she falls over at one point on the horse, and I was like, "Ooh, please don't have harmed this horse." Dude, um. Okay, I kind of was surprised by the fact that I didn't realize what a metaphor the her horse is named Challenger. And then the and she's always like this horse is going to win the race. And then mm-hmm. at the end he's like you're right. Challenger did win. And I'm like, "Oh, it's because he's going to challenge the system just like she is." Can I tell you that I didn't get that till you, I was acting like I got it and I was applauding for you because I loved it, but I didn't get that till you just said it right now. Right. When you were talking about the horse, I thought you were going to say Jessica's girl was the metaphor because there was oh. that other horse, Jessica's girl, that was dying of bronchitis and she kept being so callous about it. She's like, is the horse dead yet? And it's because she was feeling that way about like, she was feeling so scared about death. They had, yes. But Challenger, you're right. And Challenger does win in the end. His name is Challenger. Come on. Dude, I I just miss the days when, like, scripts were deep like that, where, like, even the little things, like, the horse's name is a metaphor for something, and every line that's being said, you can watch these movies a million times and come back and watch it again and be like, wow. The whole part with prognosis negative. Prognosis negative cracks me up with the, the, like, um, spotlight on the paper they really highlight all and they really explain it to you they know know people at home won't get it so they show (laughs) us over and over again prognosis negative and what it means on paper and then when they have her ask the nurse and then the nurse realizes what's happening after the fact after she's said it i know that she just told a woman she's gonna die by accident i love that all of that scene and the way betty davis twists that language and makes it comedic and the way they explain it to us. It's really well written. I wrote down who wrote it. It was someone that wasn't like super, hold on, let's see. We've got the directors and writers and stuff. Um, Edmund Goulding directed this. He was British and I guess he was famous for like making very tasteful dramas, like classy looking dramas. Um, He showed like elegance, refinement. Um, So he directed the Grand Hotel, which I feel like, yes, obviously. This movie is so Grand Hotel. Um, the Dawn Patrol, The Old Maid, 
The Razor's Edge, and then Nightmare Alley is his like outlying work that's nothing like these, but is like a really cool, scary kind of noir. Nightmare Alley. And then we mentioned Geraldine Fitzgerald as Anne. She is a solid backup actress. I feel like she's a supporting actress that is there for you, even when they make her be such a weird, no backbone, no spine lady. Um, but she was in The Pawnbroker, Wuthering Heights, and a very good episode of The Golden Girls. She was in the one, I was noticing it, and I went, no, that's you. She was in the one where Sophia's friend is going to kill herself, and Sophia's like, don't. Um, remember that one? No, but I believe you, and now I feel like i got to go back and watch this. So I'm going to be like, Geraldine Fitzgerald. Yeah. And we have Ronald Reagan is in this, obviously. And then we have um, Henry Travers, who played the doctor, who is like Clarence in yes. It's a Wonderful Life, and who is like, hi, I'm a supporting actor, and I'm in everything. That's the dream. He was living the dream. And he got to be like an old, unattractive man and still get paid, which is like everyone's acting dream. All those people like who never really got huge recognition for being stars, but knew that they had consistent work. I mean, that must have been the best job ever. And they're all contracted. So like they were going to get paid no matter what. That would be awesome. Which again, the contract system totally blew, but guys like him were lucky. Casey Robinson wrote the screenplay. It's based on a play. And Casey Robinson also wrote Now Voyager, Captain Blood, and Days of Glory. And this was based on a stage play by George Emerson Brewer Jr. and Bertram Block. I don't really know either of them. The two most exciting people in this in real life were Betty Davis and George Brent. Their lives are both fascinating. They both have like big tumultuous lives. Like George Brent gets married five times to a bunch of like, women he works with <laughs> and has like love affairs and just had so many crazy lifetimes in his one lifetime. And Betty Davis is the same, where she was married four times, so many crazy lifetimes in one lifetime, both like larger than life kind of people, you know? I think you kind of have to be when you're in Hollywood because like stuff must be happening to you all the time when you're in like 1940s Hollywood. Whoever you sleep with, I feel like you got to marry. Didn't Elizabeth Taylor say that? Like they weren't in a time period where they could just like sleep around and like have boyfriends. Like as soon as they had a boyfriend, like they kind of had to like get married. So I feel like they got married all the time. Maddie Davis talked about that in the Dick Cavett interview. So I'm just going to tell people at home, like just go watch the Dick Cavett interview. It's on YouTube. It will shock you because they say some like sexist anti-feminist things that you're like, oh, shit but at the same time she's such like an anti-mame huge personality that it's Mm -hmm. so worth it to watch um but she was talking about that and how she hates that about the past she's like i got married the first time Uh. so i could have sex and that's fucked up and i was like yes betty davis she keeps it so real she keeps it so real. it really is incredible how just she's just gonna be like this is the truth this is what this is what it was i was just trying to experience sex that's why i got married Like, wow, Betty. She was saying, I love how it's being done now. Or like, she's like, don't be a slut. I think that's what she says. And I was like, okay, stop, stop (laughs) there. She says, it's like, it's one of the great things that you do in your life. Like, you should just be able to do that. And I was like, yes. Yes, Betty Davis. Betty Davis for giving a mission once again. And it sounds like her first marriage, she got married at 26. And she's like, I was a virgin until I got married. And it sucked. Um, She was just like, she sounded not content about her relationship but it also sucked in that like her first husband didn't make any money and he was the kind of person where like it bothered him that she made so much money so they could never like really resolve that because he was like we can't buy a house till i can afford it and she's like hi i make a thousand a week like we can buy a house um she always felt like she had to be smaller in that role and one of the men she said she married she said she married him because he didn't know who she was 
and wasn't going to be scared of her. That's probably like the only reason she married him. Like the one, she's like, this is fine. He's not threatened by me, I'll marry him. I think she had like a daughter that she put away, right? She did. So eventually, Betty Davis does All About Eve, which is just, again, one of the most fantastic films ever made, period. Her performance in it is excellent. She's great in it. And she marries her co-star. Um, his name is Gary Merrill, and he plays the director in that movie. They fall in love in real life. And he ends up adopting, like, her kid that she had with her last husband, which is sweet. But I'm saying this is sweet. I feel like he also might have been an alcoholic and might have abused mm. her. I don't totally know. Mm -hmm, so let's mm -hmm. keep that in our minds. But together they do adopt two children. And one of them has a quote-unquote accident as an infant. Something goes wrong. And then they put her in, like, an institution. It was very cloudy and vague. But that's, it was the daughter that they named after the character. It was their daughter, Margot. Oh, no. Um, that I was like, oh. Wow. What a life. I think she passed away, too. Like, what a life. Like, really, what a life. Oh, they have a one, they only have one bed, I noticed. Ooh. And I was like, Because at this time, in the bedroom, people had twin beds, right? They do not have twin beds, this couple. So I wanted to point that out. Whoa. Racy. I also did write, you have a cook and a maid, shut up, because she did say, we have nothing and yet we have everything. And I'm like, no, you still have everything. I would love a house <laughs> in Vermont with a staff. Yeah. So I talked about George Brent with like the not being toxic masculinity. And I was like, he's mature. He's direct. He is kind. He's respectful and not predatory. But he has that line where he's like, I just want you to find peace. And she says, where is peace? And he says, within yourself. Okay, Dalai Lama. There's so much good writing, man. It's all so relatable. And the fact that she is so rich and glamorous, it makes you feel like you're rich and glamorous because you can relate to so many things, of, so many feelings that she has. And so I imagine once again, like the fantasy of this woman in the 1940s being like, oh my God, she's so glamorous and beautiful. And she feels like how I feel, like that my life has been a waste or like, you know, all these different things that I feel like it's all to try to make women of the 1940s feel better. It's beautifully escapist. And it does, now that I'm thinking about like the, the reference to Douglas Sirk stuff is that he made quote unquote women's oh. pictures, like pictures yeah. for and about women. And a lot of them have these same themes. And it's like about living your truest life, finding a love that actually loves you for who you are and not all of these things that you possess or all of these things that they think you are. Because again, I guess the other two relationships in this, Alec, Ronald Reagan drunk guy, likes her for like the social aspect of it. She dresses pretty, she's fun. He doesn't love her for the real her. Same with Michael, he likes her for, Michael is Humphrey Bogart, he likes her for the idea of her. Right. But George Brent's the one that like really loves her for her. And she actively tries to hide from George Brent. The whole movie is about her being like, no, 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 I'm fine. And she puts us in this like party girl act that I feel like as a party girl probably really works to entertain people and to make them not see the real her. I totally see what you're saying is that like, not only does he know the real her, but she's not able to fake him out. And you also just made me think about like her wardrobe in this. Ori Kelly is the designer for this. And he also did like anti-mame. So he's great with these like fabulous, fantastic costumes. They tell the story too. So when she is like wild and crazy, that's when I think as a character watching her, she looks the most uncomfortable. She's wearing a super exposing outfit that you almost get the sense she's not comfortable in. Throughout, she's wearing various fabulous things uh, that are shiny or bright or quirky, like when she decides to wear the cap because her hair is cut from the operation. It's all very clever and quirky. And then when she's trying to be someone who's not herself at this idea of this party girl, that's where she's wearing the dress where she's like very exposed. 
but looks Oh my God, wow, what a great point. Wow. Well, you brought it out of me by saying the stuff you were saying. Oh, you won't admit it, but you can't deny it. That's a line I feel like George Brent says to her, she says to somebody. Uh, I don't know, it's a great line. I wish people spoke the way that, that the writing was in this time period. I do too. The Oh, the, her first line in the whole movie. I'm one of those people that like loves the first 10 minutes of movies because I'm a dork that once took a writing class. And in the first 10 minutes of every movie, they tell you like, the status quo of the character and they try to build the whole world for you and give you all the information you need to know about people so you can understand their journey wow. at the end. That's like the first 10 minutes of every movie. Really? So I become like a first 10 minutes detective where I'm like, okay, so we're seeing this, 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 and this. So what we see in the beginning of this movie, actually the first shot is Michael. It's Humphrey Bogart. <laughs> and he, he's, he's like very chipper. It's bright and early in the morning. And he's calling up the house and we see servants. So you can't just call... Judith Traherne directly. He works for her. He's calling her early in the morning. It goes through a channel of people. And we know because of what the people are saying that like she's a party animal who is still up from the night before. Right. Um, so we get all this information. We get information about Anne right away. We get Anne is like responsible, constant, and prim. And then we get to meet Judith. And the first line out of her mouth, she's half asleep. And she says, this is Miss Judith Traherne of the Sleeping Trahernes. What a fabulous thing to say. We already know her. We know she likes to party. We know she's not prim. We know she's funny. Like, they give us all that information right away. Also, it's deep because she's sleeping through her life. <gasps> and she starts off in bed and ends up in bed. In bed. It's Whoa. not an accident. It's not an accident. Oh, my God. That's so smart. You're right. She's sleeping through her life. That's brilliant. And then the other thing she says after that is my head is woozy, not vacant. And I was like, whoa, what a whoa, line. Whoa, you have a head problem. Is this whole movie this is about your head problem? You're telling us about your head problem and you're telling us that you're smart. All in one line. See, this is the thing. It's like it's devastating to watch these movies and realize just how brilliant people used to write things because I just feel like I don't know if you can do this with movies now. And I think it's amazing to watch it all over again. Like, how many millions of times have I seen this movie? And you pointing that out is the first time I can be like, oh, my God. It's... And you know they did it on purpose. It's not an accident. You know they thought about the bed to the bed. They definitely did. I do think that movies do have that now, but I think it's a different kind of movie. The artsy pictures that win awards are this thoughtful. Okay. But I I love this. I just, you're right. There's so much artistry about this film. And thought. And it's not done in a pretentious way, like, ooh, then she'll be in a bed again. I feel like it really is about something that's been well thought out and is really meaningful and intellectual, not just for the sake of a gimmick. And that's what I like about it. Well, and we've both seen this movie several times. So the fact that like, we're just noticing it now too. You're right, there's layers to each viewing. Yes. I like that a lot. Um, I do want to point out two technical things that I noticed that I wish I knew the technical names of, but I was wondering if like, this was one of the first movies to do it. Cause I noticed when she got, so she starts to notice something is wrong with her head. Cause she keeps getting what she calls hangovers, which are really just like terrible headaches that aren't normal and then she gets like split double vision and they show us her split yeah. double vision like we see it from her perspective and I was like ooh is that a cool new filmmaking trick that we're just like ooh. learning about <laughs> and then later in the film oh, when when George Brent leaves and she wants to go plant the hyacinths with Anne and um, they do like a cool like sliding fadeaway and I was like, oh, is that new? When was the first time that was done? Because we've seen it all the time now, but it's like it slides from one scene into the next. And I was just like, "What? that was probably a brand new thing in filmmaking 
And I wonder if this was the first time it was done or when the first time it was done. Oh, wow. Yeah, I have no idea. It's just noticing those things. I mean, like, oh, because I had Liam on a couple weeks ago and we were talking about, like, when was the first time different things happened that we take for granted now? Totally. But anyway, I did want to talk about her romance with George Brent because I pointed out that they never kissed throughout the film. Right. But they have such a deep connection. And I think one thing that's really cool is because they don't kiss, they do a lot of, like, this embrace where we the camera shows us over the shoulders of both of them so we get their feelings all the time about each other in the situation. Yeah. This was just such a creative way of showing how deep their relationship was. And it was like, they had small gestures with each other. They didn't need to show us constant makeout scenes for us to get that. Again, I would have liked a makeout scene, I'm not gonna lie, but <laughs> I didn't feel robbed without it. The fact that I had never before noticed that they never kissed. It, like this was a new noticing thing. It's not like you uh, watched it, the movie and felt like it wasn't enough. Like you got the sense of intimacy. You definitely get the fact that they're in this romantic relationship and everything is going well for them, like in terms of their relationship. That's really all you need. You don't need tongue. You know that they had the tongue though because they had the one bed. So like we know we're missing right. out on the aspect of their Right, we already knew because we saw the bed. We saw yeah. the one bed. Um, but he, in the end, he lets his hair fall. Like his hair is pushed back the whole time. And this time I noticed he had like a curl at the end around his face. And I was like, he lets his hair down with her. They're comfortable with each other. It's beautiful. Yeah. Their relationship progressed, man. It progressed. And we, we saw that through his hair acting. I want to know what their life was like after they did this movie and they fell in love. And like, I feel like that would have been a great movie to watch was like them falling in love on the set of this movie and the year of their romance after. Like, what is it like to fall in love with your co-star as a Hollywood star in 1939? And to still work with them. Cause it's like, they worked together before, they worked together after and they had a love affair in between. So it's like, how does that work? How did they work on eight movies and not realize they like each other? And then on movie eight be like, oh my God, I love you. Well, I think it sounds to me like they both had crazy affairs with a lot of different people. So I True. think it was just like passion all over the place. Like Betty Davis, there was another person she had an affair with that was really great. Who was it? William, she had a lot Willie of Wyler. William Wyler, that was it. That was it. She was like, he's mm -hmm. the love of my life. That happens like right before she has an affair with George Brent. So like, <laughs> I don't know. I think it's a good life. And I think it's interesting that they had a romance. I'm just piecing this together now. But then he wanted her to like do something on a movie that she didn't want to do. And she never worked with him again. It was like they had a romance. It was great. She loved him so much. And he's like, do this on a movie. And she's like, no. And that's it for her. She's such a badass. I would love this level of gumption. She's so formidable and so strong and so smart. And I think that's why she's so, she became so popular because I think women, no matter what the decade, would love to channel a little Betty Davis. Mm -hmm. Same with Auntie Mame, Rosalind Russell. Same with Barbara Stanwyck. You're right. It's like that movie, The Holiday, when um, the Eli Wallach's character has Kate Winslet watch all those classic films and they're always about women with gumption, so she'll have gumption. Oh, I don't know that, but I think that's a great thing for, that all of us definitely need. Yeah. Oh, wait, that was one other thing I wanted to bring up is like her last thing she says to Anne, one of the last things, she's like, never leave him, Anne. And I was like, that's a huge thing to ask of your friend. Never leave my husband, Anne. And then I've always loved how she says that line where she's like, Anne, be my best friend. Please go. Please be a best friend. Be my friend. It gets very melodramatic at the end there. It I'm not really going to lie. Does. It 
but I love it, but it does. But it does. But she she's a little bit like gilding the lily, I would say. Ooh. Even for a Betty Davis. <laughs> it's a lot. <laughs> oh, I think that the dog is too much for me. Oh my god. Okay, I'm so we've, we've really done it. He's so cute. Like just stay there. He's just so weird. Like, what? Why are you being so weird? You're being so. He's weird. He's not being weird. He's being a dog. He's loving. He's like, I love you. I love you right yeah. now. Yeah. I'm like, what? <laughs> um, anyway, I'm sorry. Okay. No, you're doing great. So this, we're now at the double feature portion of our show. Oh. Which is like when we just recommend, uh, if you liked this, why not check this other movie out? And so I think with this one. For, like, Betty Davis, I would say probably Now Voyager is, like, a really good match with this because it's also, like, a woman finding herself and becoming something else in herself. That one's a little more of, like, a demure thing. It's, like, she goes from being demure to outspoken. So I think that would be, like, an interesting journey to watch this with. And then I was actually thinking Grand Hotel would be a really good pairing with this. There's a lot of the same themes, it's also very melodramatic, and I kind of love that Joan Crawford's in that one and that her and Betty Davis famously have a large feud. So it's like you could watch the double feature of, like, Betty Davis and Joan Crawford. Mm. Um, and then you could also just watch All About Eve because she's amazing. Those would probably be any of my recommendations. Do you have, like, an extra film that you would add to the double feature? Okay, well, the Betty Dav- my Betty Davis double feature for this would be A Stolen Life. Because A Stolen Life is my personal favorite Betty Davis movie. She's very young. She's a New Englander. It's such a romantic movie. But the coolest thing about it is that she plays two different women. She plays an evil twin and a good twin. And the writing is exceptional. It is so beautiful. It is so well written. And there's a million twists. It's great. It's just a great, it's one of my favorite movies and she does a beautiful job in it. And um, you really see how she could just distinguish two different types of herself and really make it clear that this is one person and this is another without going overboard in characterizing herself. Um, And then the other one I would double feature with, I guess is like Steel Magnolias maybe because uh, dealing with death. Dealing with okay. death. And, and like dealing, women being strong together. Yeah, no, I guess. Yeah. I'm throwing that out there. Okay. <laughs> I don't, I'm, not, I'm not bagging it up with anything real. <laughs> All I thought of when you said that was the armadillo cake. And I was like, well, this movie was short of armadillo cakes. If it lacked anything, <laughs> it was the, didn't have an armadillo cake. Oh, this is really dumb. But one more dark victory thing I wanted to point out that fascinated me was you had mentioned earlier their opulent lifestyle. And they go to this like fancy club. And there's a server that brings her a drink on one tiny tray and then brings her he has like two tiny trays that each have one drink on them and i was like whoa the opulence like so you got your drink carried singularly no shared trays it's here. a look it's got to look at the right way that's the whole point it's a look you know this is a classy joint if each individual drink gets its own tray and server And like, man, who was rich in this time? Like the amount of like people that were just like dealing with the stock market crash and were just like really, really poor. And then like, you you know, like to be rich in this time period, you must have been like that, that really tiny sliver of people that are like way too rich and everyone else is poor. That kind of feels like now though, too, if I'm being honest. Oh, That's sure. how I feel now. So it all comes back. Someday, Ashley, we'll go to a place. It will have opened up because the pandemic will be over. And we'll be like, two drinks, please, on individual trays. And we'll do that. <laughs> and that's how we will know. 
That's how we'll know we've made it. We'll know we've made it, yeah. <laughs> well, thank you so much for being a guest on my show. It was lovely thank having you. Thank you for having me. I had such a, I had such a great time, as always, with you. Ah, oh, thanks. Right back at you. And we will see you next time on Talk Classic to Me. Uh-huh.